When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Holding pocket. Welcome to another episode of the Rabbit Hole Detectives, a podcast where I, Dr. Kat Jarman, Richard Coles and Charles Spencer chase the provenance of historical objects, both real and metaphorical. Each episode, we set one another the task of finding out as much as we can about a particular subject to present a comprehensive understanding of the origin stories of stuff. After all, everything has a history. It just depends on how far down the rabbit hole you're prepared to go. And at the end of it all, our disembodied voice pronounces a winner. So welcome back, rabbit holies. Thank you, Kat. Hi, Kat. Very nice to be back. I love the fact that we're doing all these topics suggested by listeners. It's just so nice to connect in that way actually i think it's a good thing and not to have to think of something new ourselves well, that is quite a bonus isn't it definitely and it's just sort of it's really interesting to see what people want to know about actually what they're interested in and also it's got a real international reach i have a friend in madrid who has sent me some incredibly good anglo-centric suggestions for further episodes i mean it's really interesting what people come up with not what you expect at all yes absolutely i feel like i'm getting quite clever <laughs> learning about all these topics little snippets yeah i mean we're going to be unbeatable in pub quiz teams aren't we from now on do you think i think we should issue some challenges actually not under the rabbit hole detectives label because people might think that's unfair but i just think if we just come up with a, a very unthreatening name and go to ones where money's involved and then we'll be rolling in coal. <laughs> yes. Free port scratch. I'm just yes. doing on tour. I'm so I'm on tour at the moment, and uh, I take questions from the audience, and many of the questions have been asking about the provenance and the history and the origins of the rabbit hole detectives. Well, I think it was Cat who suggested it when you were both at my place, wasn't it? Yes, because we came. That was the first time we met Richard. I was there for the dig, and and you came for lunch or dinner or something, and and we were sat there talking at the table about all sorts of completely random things, and obviously Charles sort of gypsy with his, his little facts and things. And we thought, well, actually, that's quite fun. I'm still utterly fascinated by plaque and the you know, <laughs> value of plaque as a substance for historical investigation. I think I'm going to have to do that for a future topic, aren't I? Just to yes. sort of teach you all about it. So let's, let's oh, have yeah, that one. that's a really good one. You know, yeah. that, you're absolutely right, Richard. That's one of the ones that really sticks out in my mind. As well as last week, you singing four national anthems, which was... Uh, Let's just say slightly overdoing it and won you the competition. Just saying. <laughs> well, you've got to put it out there, Charles, haven't you? <laughs> I think I might sort of bring in a tambourine or something next time just to sort of... Yes, you can be the Linda McCartney of the group. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, actually, tambourine banging is germane to my topic this week, but I'll hold fire on that. Ooh, excellent. Well, I look forward to hearing all about it. But I think we should just go straight into it because we've got, as you said, some listener suggestions again. So we are going to be starting with you, Charles. And one of our listeners called Alison has set you the task of looking into stage disappearances. Well, thank you, Alison. This has been a joy. 
I've come across some really bizarre people this week. I'm going to play my ace early on, which is Timothy Dexter. He was born in the mid-18th century in Massachusetts. And to call him an eccentric would be rather under-egging it. I mean, he's completely bonkers. Very, very lucky in business. He started life as a sort of immigrant Irishman of quite a sort of modest background. But he, first of all, married a, a wealthy widow. And then through a series of very lucky business decisions, I, I don't know how much was a decision in just pure luck, he became one of the wealthiest people in eastern United States. And he decided not to fight in the American War of Independence. He wasn't really a fighting sort of chap, but he made a fortune out of it because he bought up continental dollar bills, which became absolutely worthless during the, the independence war. But when after the War of Independence, once the colonies had got their freedom from the British Empire, Alexander Hamilton decided that one of the things that America must do to have a credibility as a financial force was to honor previous continental bills. And suddenly, overnight, Timothy Dexter went from being an ordinary man in Massachusetts to one of the richest people in America. And then people tried to trick him. They didn't like him. He wasn't a very popular man. I can't pretend he was a very nice man. There's records of him being quite violent and unpleasant. But business rivals thought they wanted to really undo him. And they suggested that he should export coals to Newcastle. They thought this was an absolute certainty to make him lose all his money. Anyway, he thought it was a brilliant idea. And guess what? His ships arrived in Newcastle with coal during a miners' strike. And his coal was worth a fortune. So he made more and more money there. He was never really riddled with self-doubt. He believed that America should be an empire and that he should be the emperor of America. He thought this was a very good idea. He called himself the greatest philosopher in the Western world. He's lavished his money on local communities, hoping that they would honor him by naming things after himself, the Dexter Library, etc. But people didn't want his name on anything. And he thought they were missing a trick because of his obvious qualities. And he wrote his autobiography, it's called A Pickle for the Knowing Ones, which was an extraordinary sort of torrent of unpunctuated thoughts. And he was ridiculed for not knowing how to punctuate. So he ordered a second edition to be published in which the appendix had all the different sorts of punctuation in it. And he suggested people pepper and salt the pages as they wished with the punctuation of their choice. So a very, very strange man. And his stage disappearance came about because he, he, with all this money and with all this reluctance for people to take him seriously, he decided to test people as to what they really thought about him. So he arranged his own mock funeral. And he had a magnificent tomb, which he modestly called the Temple of Reason, and a coffin, which he got into and stocked it with tobacco, pipes, a trumpet. And there was a procession, there was a eulogy, but he was furious for two things in his stage disappearance. One was the town didn't bother to toll the bells in his honour. And the other one was his wife shed no tears. And he was absolutely outraged to find her laughing with the rest of the congregation in the kitchen. And that was slightly the end of their marriage. So a very, very strange man. And if I could have a little postscript for him, he decided he had a great admiration for the French royal family. And on 1 4th of July, he decided to give a speech in French. And he admitted at the beginning he didn't know how to speak French. So he just spoke it in English using French mannerisms. <laughs> so an unusual cove, I think we can call him. 
Um, there's another American, much more recent. We're talking about 1971, the day before Thanksgiving, 24th of November. A man called D.B. Cooper or Dan Cooper got on an airplane in Portland, Oregon, and bought a one-way ticket to Seattle, Washington. The one-way ticket should have been a bit of a giveaway. He bought it with cash. And he sat in the back row and he gave a note to the air stewardess. She thought it was just a, a telephone number from a bored businessman and just put it in her purse. And he said he leant over and said, actually, you ought to read it because I've got a bomb. And this man, Cooper, had showed her in his briefcase what looked like four sticks of dynamite and a lot of wire. And this woman, called Florence Schaffner, told the pilot, you know, we have got a serious problem here. And Cooper demanded $200,000 in $20 bills, as well as four parachutes, two on the front, two on the back. He was brilliant, this man. I mean, the way he thought it through, because he then realized he needed to make sure that the parachutes worked. And so he, by having four, it looked as though he was going to take some passengers with him. So when they landed and the $200,000 were delivered and the four parachutes, he then took off again, heading towards Nevada and on for Mexico City, essentially. But he had done all his research. He had taken on a plane that had a particular way of opening while you're flying. He jumped out. He's never been seen again. His stage disappearance. They found some clumps of the $200,000. They never found a body. The FBI liked to think he was dead because it was bad weather. He jumped in thick woodland. And they said he had a lack of knowledge of the area. Well, that's not true because he was able to point out various Air Force bases and towns below to the air stewardess as he is going by. And it's probable that he had a paratroop background, probably. So what do we owe to this stage disappearance? Well, quite a very fundamental change in air travel because he had imitators who took to hijacking in the following year. And this led to metal detectors, luggage inspections, things we take totally for granted today all came from this stage disappearance. And also anyone who is brave enough or odd enough to buy a ticket with cash on the day of their going somewhere, they are going to be subjected to very thorough interrogations. That's part of the procedure because of this man. And if he is alive today, which is possible, he would be in his 80s or, or 90s. Well, I was just thinking how much difficult it would be to disappear now, I guess, because we're so easily traceable and trackable. And you, I mean, you imagine not being able to use your chip and pin or something or CCTV. It would be very, very difficult, wouldn't it, to hide yourself away somewhere. I don't know how people do it. I think it's extremely difficult, isn't it? Because you've got things tracking you everywhere. You can't, as you say, you can't use anything digital. You can't have your phone on you, really, because that's going to be tracked, even if it's just in your pocket and you're not using it. And you're just leaving traces everywhere. There were stories, weren't there, not that long ago, of Nazis being spirited out of Germany after the end of the Second World War and ending up living in places like Panama or Paraguay, deep in the jungle, some small German-speaking community of people who would occasionally in their cups sing the Horst Vessel or something when they thought no-one was listening. Indeed, such people did exist, I think. But I, I don't even think you could get up the Amazon now and find yourself in dense jungle and really keep your head down for that long. I think in this country, though, if you were going to go, I would go on a river or a canal, just get a canal boat or something like that, because surely then you'd be quite well hidden from cameras. Yeah, but you've still got to go past people and open locks and things, haven't yeah, you? Well, you need a helper, I suppose, and an yeah. assistant. Uh, British 
people listening to this will think of a couple of stage disappearances in very different circumstances, but in the same year, well, 1973, 1974, Lord Lucan, who was an, an aristocrat who gambled, who, well, we don't know for sure that he's a murderer, but he is considered to have been the prime and only suspect in the murder of his children's nanny, allegedly because he was trying to kill his wife, his very estranged wife, who he wasn't happy with having the main custody of their three children. And the nanny was murdered with a lead pipe. Lady Lucan ran to the pub around the corner of the plumber's arms and raised the alarm and said it was her husband's voice she had heard. And it became an absolutely extraordinary, huge story in the newspapers in Britain because, first of all, he was an earl. And secondly, the sort of disappearance. Was it a staged disappearance or was he murdered? There's one theory that a group of his very influential, slightly shady figures in the gambling world had conspired to help him to get rid of his wife because he wanted that to be the case. And when it all went wrong... Perhaps Lucan said he was going to be a gentleman and go to the police and say what a mistake it had all been. And they couldn't have that because they'd have been implicated. But nobody really knows. He's never been seen since the night of the death of the nanny. And it brings me on to another man who disappeared at much the same time, a man called John Stonehouse, who was a, a shadow cabinet minister and a cabinet minister for Labour in the UK in the 70s. He was suspected of being a Czech spy. His party leader, Harold Wilson, didn't like him and blocked his promotions. And so he decided to become a businessman. He had multiple businesses that failed, and he had the equivalent of today of £10 million worth of debts. And so he staged a disappearance on a Florida beach. People found his clothes. They assumed it was a suicide. He went to Australia. He took the name of a dead constituent of his from Parliament, and he met up there with his mistress, Sheila Buckley, and they settled into a life there. But guess what? Lucan's disappearance led to his capture because the well-spoken Englishman with lots of money aroused lots of suspicion. The police arrested Stonehouse, asked him to lift up his clothes so they could look at his thigh because Lucan had a scar there. And they suddenly realised it wasn't Lucan at all. It was Stonehouse. And he was arrested, went to prison, got a seven-year sentence and died as a relatively young man. And so we have those two associated and then there's another one, much more recent in English history. In 2002, a man called John Darwin, again, had all these problems with business. And he decided to work with his wife and conspire to get a quarter million pound payment. He went to live in Panama. But he didn't realize that those seeking to start a business life in Panama needed a letter from their police force saying that they were a person of good character. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to set up. So he decided what he had to do was reverse his disappearance. And he reappeared in England, saying he'd had amnesia for a few years. And this didn't really stack up. And he ended up going to prison. Weirdly, he got six years, his wife got six and a half years, even though she didn't do the disappearing, but she was very heavily involved in the fraud. Have we got a comment from our disembodied voice? Yes, uh, Charles, I just wanted to follow up on why Anne Darwin received a longer sentence than her husband, John. It's widely believed it was because she pleaded not guilty, whereas he oh, accepted his actions. That's very good. Very fair. Yes. And my favourite one, if I can go to that, would be Agatha Christie. Now, we don't really know precisely what was going on. So in 1926, Agatha Christie, the great crime writer, was already immensely famous, and she disappeared from her home in Berkshire. Having kissed her seven-year-old daughter, Rosalind, goodbye, she drove off into the night. Her car was soon found, but she wasn't. 
It turned out that she'd gone to Harrogate, which is rather a glamorous spa town in the north of England at the time, was living very quietly there, just blending in as a member of sort of high society. Now, we can't even imagine the scale of the manhunt. There were over a thousand policemen deployed. It was on the front page of the New York Times. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who pops up quite regularly in our podcast, was called in and he decided that the best way to find her was to use supernatural powers. And he submitted her glove to a medium. That didn't work. Dorothy L. Sayers, another great crime writer from the period, was called in. She went to investigate the last place where Agatha Christie had been seen. That didn't stir anything in her. And what do we know? We don't really know for sure what happened. It's quite possible one of her more recent biographers thinks that she'd had enough of a really grim marriage to a man called Archie Christie, who had been a World War I pilot but was really not the ideal husband. He was a philanderer with a very brazen mistress in tow. And her, her biographers seem to think that she might have been contemplating suicide. But... She put it down to what we would call a, a psychogenic trance and said she had no memory of it. She never, ever spoke about it again for the rest of her life. She refused to be drawn on the topic. But I suppose as a happy postscript for her, two years later, she divorced her husband and married somebody else. But I find it so fascinating. These people who, well, someone like Agatha Christie, highly intelligent, manufactures her own disappearance, probably had very dark thoughts, but then... She was spotted by a banjo player in Harrogate who recognised her and called up the police. But, you know, that is a real mystery. What was she doing? We don't know. I rather like the idea of disappearing by going to Harrogate. <laughs> I have <laughs> been to Harrogate. You'd work a bit harder at it now, wouldn't you? Yes. I mean, Betty's tea rooms, you couldn't really keep a low profile there. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure it would be where I'd go if I was going to disappear. I think I'd possibly pick somewhere else. I know, I did a programme ages ago. I did a report on witchcraft in the north of England and ended up going to some absolutely ludicrous woman who was supposedly a mystic. And it, well, she wasn't. She had people working the audience as they entered the auditorium that evening, as I was one of them. And they were asking questions about you. And it was ridiculous. It was just so staged. But anyway, Harrogate was very glamorous back in the day in the 20s. You know, it was a proper spa town with very sort of significant social pretensions. Just thinking about where I would go. I think I might bang on the door of a on monastic community and seek sanctuary and keep my head down somewhere in the kitchen scrubbing pots but even so you'd need a national insurance number now wouldn't you and have an nhs number and all that how do you melt away and disappear now there was a man who worked at windsor castle and he'd been there for a very long time and when he died i think it's about 15 years ago or so, there was no record of him ever having joined and they reckon he was a member of the public who just slipped in and sort of made himself useful around the place and then just became part of the household. But that was in an era, he would have done that decades ago when things weren't as rigorous, I guess. There was a lady at the BBC, Charles, and uh, she was a studio manager working a broadcasting house in London. It was discovered eventually that she'd actually been living in broadcasting house for several years <laughs> because, I don't know, she'd been evicted from a flat or something had gone wrong. And she just sort of quietly moved into work and took advantage of a sofa to have a kip at night and go for a shower. And somehow the security guards either didn't find her or weren't bothered by her presence because there's people there 24 hours and she had a job there. So this continued for some time. So I imagine you can sort of disguise your residency somewhere but that's not the same as disappearing is it no brilliant love that so 
I think that's going to lead us on to you now, Richard, actually. So thanks for that, Charles. And Richard, you have been diving down the rabbit hole of exorcism, a topic that's been suggested twice, actually, by Glenn and Frank. So what have you discovered? Well, I am an exorcist, so I know a little bit about this. Now, that sounds incredibly glamorous, as if I stand Jesuitically on a street corner lit with an earthly light wearing a Homburg while a disturbed teenager's head revolves through 360 degrees, <laughs> spewing vomit as it goes, obliging me to listen to curse words of a kind that was so strong that I wouldn't really understand what they meant. It's not that. Exorcism is actually, in Christianity, just a very prosaic, fundamental part of what we do. It's been around forever, of course. They've always been wherever people have had religious feelings. It's very common now, if you go to the Mediterranean, you don't have to go very far from here, and you will see the evil eye. The evil eye is a stern look, really, but a stern look which is seen by some as conveying malice and malevolent agency from the devil or a demon. And you can ward it off by doing various things. Quite a lot of people like to make the sign of the horn, you know, the two fingers, not the V fingers, but the fingers at the end of your hand, to keep it at bay. Scratching your genitals, if you're a male, is seen as a very good way of warding off the evil eye. Or also there's this symbol where you stick your thumb between your index finger and your forefinger, which is meant to symbolise the penis inside a vagina. And that's meant to be very good at keeping off the evil eye, which would cause impotence otherwise. All sorts of creatures run around antiquity involved in the business of exorcism and keeping demons at bay. Fallacies would run around, disembodied fallacies, ejaculating into the evil eye as a way of keeping it at bay. I realise this is a rabbit hole, perhaps we've explored long enough. More conventional forms of exorcism would be those which people like me, priests of the Christian church, we exercise our exorcisms. Now, it's very common because actually it's in the baptismal rite, and it always has been, right from the word go. I think it was felt that before candidates for baptism could receive the sacrament of baptism, then the decks needed to be cleared of any darkness or evil doing. And so there's a rite which in a very sort of mild Church of England sort of way is still pronounced when we baptise someone to ensure that evil is banished in the name of Jesus Christ, so that the new life of the baptised person may begin. In the early church, it all got a bit crazy, really, because, in fact, one of the orders, the minor orders of the early church, was exorcist. And lots of people could apply to be one, so you didn't need any qualifications. There was no training course. You didn't have to have a safeguarding training or something to do this. You could just appoint yourself an exorcist, and wherever someone was perhaps disturbed, had a mental illness or anxiety or fear of some kind, an exorcist could turn up and kind of rattle off some prayers and sprinkle you with holy water in the hope and expectation that this would achieve a cure of some kind. Didn't always work, of course. And so as a result of that, the church began to get a bit more formal about it and started writing rituals and liturgies specifically for that purpose and confining their use to priests so that there was a degree of institutional control over that. Because another thing was felt that not only did you have to have some degree of control over the people who were offering exorcism, but you needed to make some inquiries into the people who claimed to be possessed to see if that was something that made sense to them in their own day and time, and not something that could be attributed simply to something else, like mischief or a mental illness of some kind. 
So it became sort of formalised. There was a bit of a competition in it as well. The religious orders, the mendicant orders in particular, those that went around the place preaching, well, exorcism, claiming to be able to see off demons and to bring peace and tranquility to people who were upset and disturbed, was quite a thing. So they became sort of quite competitive about it and various other handbooks were produced with various rites which were thought to be efficient. They standardise after all. There's usually a prayer, and you still hear it now, a prayer which invokes St Michael the Archangel, who is the great battler against the forces of Satan. And quite often the prayers that you would, an exorcist would use today, would invoke the support of the Archangel Michael and the intervention of the Archangel Michael. Because he's the one, do you remember, who cast Satan down, the fallen angel. So he landed on earth and became a serpent and caused no end of trouble for Adam and Eve. Well, we had an exorcism at home. So my stepmother was convinced there was an evil spirit at home at Althorpe. So she got the local vicar and he did a ceremony in every single room. Is that right, Richard? Would you need to do that? Or Well, it's an interesting one. I mean, there's like exorcisms and there are exorcisms. Most of the times when people apply to clergy to come and sort out what they experience as an evil spirit somewhere, well, we would go around and we would really say some prayers, maybe sprinkle some holy water if that's part of your practice, if you're in the Catholic tradition of the church. And also bless. So you might use various mm. items to bless a crucifix, perhaps. Some people would use salt, sacramentals, all these things that would remind people of the irresistible force and power of God that could dispel the influence of anything dark and demonic. Often what you're doing, actually, of course, is just providing some sort of reassurance to people who are upset or unhappy about something. And so that would be part of the everyday work of a priest. But every diocese in the Church of England maintains an exorcist, and he'd be, or she would be, a priest particularly expert in these kind of matters. We don't call it that now. We now call it the Ministry of Deliverance which sounds a little bit boring to me. It's like the Uber Eats guy coming with a pizza, isn't it? But um, it's actually a sort of more thoughtful and considered way of doing it. In my own experience, often I've been called out to people who have been plagued by what they thought were evil spirits or ghosts. Often when you talk to those people, what they'll describe to you is a scenario you might recognise from a horror film or a ghost film or something. And for some reason they're scared, and for some reason their fear presents itself in that sort of a way. And there are ways that you can deal with that. Very occasionally, it's never happened to me, but it has happened to people I know. More unexplained phenomena have happened which have involved violence against people, violence of objects, or that kind of thing, where you would need to get somebody who was especially pointed by the bishop to deal with those sorts of cases. That person would need to be, of course, reasonably skilled, I think, in psychology, because quite often what you're dealing with is phenomena that are not supernatural, but are caused by people in one form of distress or another. I have heard stories of unexplained phenomena happening, of things being thrown around and of people being interfered with, hurt, punched, kicked, pushed downstairs by unseen hands. There's never really been any evidence in support of that. And of course, when people get excited about that, what they're really thinking about is, I suppose, the phenomenon of the exorcist from the film. You know, The Exorcist, based on a book of the early 70s and the most famous film of its genre, made a huge impact. And it was based on a sort of true story. Not a young woman, as we encounter in the film The Exorcist, but a boy, a 14-year-old boy, known as Roland Doe. And he experienced all sorts of unpleasant phenomena. 
and his parents involved their pastor, who was a Lutheran. Lutherans do this in a rather different way, not for them, the sacramental apparatus, you could have a Catholic system. For them, it's much more about the name of Christ and the word of Christ in the Bible. But anyway, these phenomena continued. Beds shook, imprecations were muttered. The boy's body started to be covered with scratched words. Uh, He spoke in Latin. All these things became rather alarming. And then they involved the Jesuits who came to have a sort of specialism in this kind of thing. And there are accounts of things happening, things being held across rooms and all that kind of thing, which have never been fully explained. The boy made a recovery and went on to have a happy and successful life. But the story gained a sort of currency was being talked about in the universities. It obviously spoke to some anxiety. I think in the church it was around the time of Vatican II. It was a time of great change and turbulence and uncertainty about our role in the world, perhaps. And so it all, all those factors came together and produced this phenomenon, a very powerful one. People were very affected and frightened by the film. And if you were in the business of exorcism, it was rather a good time to be it. The boy, by the way, he grew up to become an engineer at NASA. He was once the, <laughs> one of the people responsible for developing heat-resistant tiles on the space shuttle. He died quite recently at the age of 86. So things ended happily for him. Would you like to know my favourite fact? Yes, I would love that. Well, Ringo Starr's granny, Annie Bauer, was known as the voodoo queen of Liverpool. Born in 1889, she was possessed of extraordinary powers, or so she thought, and she would go around curing people of spiritual possession and that sort of thing. And when Ringo was developing, they discovered he was left-handed, and she felt that his left-handedness was actually a sign of demonic possession. And so the voodoo queen of Liverpool used all her powers to persuade him to use his right hand, and so he did. And when he started drumming, they got him a right-handed kit, because the right hand was the one the voodoo queen of Liverpool had persuaded him to use. But eventually, she proved to be less persuasive to Ringo, and he went back to playing with his left hand. But he continued playing on a right-handed kit. And because he was playing left-handed on a right-handed kit... There was just a very, very, very slight delay in the precision and accuracy with which he would strike the snare drum. And that, it is said, gave the Beatles part of their very distinctive laid-back sound, was that Ringo Starr had been unsuccessfully exorcised by Granny Annie, the voodoo queen of Liverpool. Love that. Imagine what would happen if she was successful. Yeah, which just wouldn't be the same. That's fantastic. Thanks so much for that, Richard. So that leaves us with my topic for this week, which was dragons, suggested by our listener, Deborah. I loved looking into this one. And I just had to start with the actual definition of a dragon, because actually, so you've got dragons coming in, but as we'll see, there's a lot of serpents, there's a lot of similar creatures coming in. And the definition really is a sort of fabulous or mythical creature often with wings, and sometimes it's defined as a huge serpent. So what's actually a dragon and what's a serpent is actually a little bit confusing. So in lots of cultures, these sort of really early creatures that we might call dragons are are more, strictly speaking, serpents, really. They go back to Mesopotamia, to art and literature, where they are really giant snakes. So the dragons seem to sort of come out of these sort of snake-like creatures. We get them in places like Babylon. They are depicted on the Ishtar Gate and portrayals of them from this sort of time and place are often that they are fierce snakes. And... 
other cultures as well, if we go to the Aboriginal Australian mythologies, there's a, a rainbow serpent. There's a really important creature that's actually a sort of creator god. And in that case, it's it's not a sort of negative one, but the serpent or the, the dragon that we're used to is a very negative one, in this European cultures especially. And again, in places like ancient Egypt in mythology, you have these sort of serpent demon-like creatures. There's a number of them that are demons of chaos and bad things, really. So generally speaking, looking at the origins, it's thought that the sort of negativity around snakes and our sort of quite common innate fear of snakes that that seems to be quite prevalent in lots of cultures has contributed to this idea that you have these giant creatures. We get these sort of dragons more as, as we think of them now in ancient Greek mythologies as well, often having fiery breath, which again is a sort of more modern idea of the dragon. And also the drachina, the female serpent, uh, as well what we get in Greek mythologies with several features of, of human uh, women, so they're not always male. Uh, Hercules is tasked with killing Hydra in the second labour of Hercules, which is this sort of nine-headed poisonous creature that rises up and terrorises the countryside. So he has to essentially lure the creature from its den and shooting flaming arrows at it. He then wounds it and attacks the different heads, but each time the head is sort of cut off another one appears so these sea monsters these sea serpents are really really common in different mythologies but in european dragons and that what we we tend to think of more as our common dragons we do have well essentially two different types of them and the first is that typical one of a winged dragon that's breathes fire. And in fact, if we go to the medieval periods to look at those definitions, it's quite interesting. So in medieval bestiaries of these sort of catalogues of beasts that you find, you have many different names for the same sort of thing. So you've got the dragon, you've got worm or orm, serpent, and the serpents or worms are essentially wingless or legless. And the dragon has four legs and may or may not have wings. So not all dragons have wings. A wyvern has two legs and two wings and breathes fire. Uh, there's also the Ouroboros or Ouroboros. Do you know what that is? No. So I hadn't come across this. That's a snake eating its own tail. So that's a one very specific type of creature. So can I ask, Kat, so essentially, do we think that the different forms came from humans seeing odd-looking animals and saying, well, that must be a sort of supernatural force? It's rather like walruses were seen as the devils in the sea, weren't they? I mean, it's just such an extraordinary-looking thing, a giant lizard or whatever it is. You lend it uh, supernatural powers. Yeah, I think it seems to be a little bit of that. And obviously the sort of idea of, of these feared creatures, and especially large snakes, there's also certainly in Europe and in folklore around these creatures and serpents especially, it's thought that some of them might have been from sightings of fossils as well. Mm. So if you see these old fossils coming up and people creating stories around them, not understanding what they were. So that's another possibility. Absolutely. I remember reading about that in ancient Greek culture, they found some and it often would confirm a myth from their own culture about a giant whatever. And in fact, they just found a dinosaur. Yes, exactly. I mean, there's something in religious texts as well. I'm thinking of in the Hebrew Bible, in Job, for example, there's a serpent that breathes fire. And breathes fire is such a sort of constituent part as of our ideas of dragons. It's hard to see mm. where the kind of natural... A basis for that would come from that comes from 
mythology, I think, doesn't it? Or legendary material or imagined material. And lots of the sort of apocalyptic literature of the Bible is about some fire appearing in unlikely places. Absolutely. And that's a really good example of that as well. Obviously, I have to bring the Vikings into it. They'll come back in a moment. One of the first recorded attacks that on Lindisfarne in 793. So the attack that's usually described as the first one, that's described in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. And for that year, there's a description. And it actually goes to start with a description of terrible portents that came about over the land of Northumbria, frightening the people. And that included immense flashes of lightning and fiery dragons seen flying in the air. And soon after this followed a famine and on the 8th of June, the raiding of the heathen men devastating God's church in Lindisfarne. So it's actually starting with dragons being seen in the sky. These, again, fiery dragons. But it's thought that that might have actually been comets appearing in the sky because oh, yes. that's very often described as well. But this sort of burning flame in the sky is then taken mm-hmm. as dragons. And in the European dragon really is always, almost always bad. It's almost always evil. It's scary and terrifying and does bad things. It's quite commonly also associated with gold and treasures. So you have these uh, very familiar examples like Babel, for example, where the dragon there actually sort of hides this treasure hoards. And again, there's some Viking stories as well where you have wonderful uh, dragons. There's one of Sigurd, the, the dragon slayer from one of the sagas, which is probably one of the most famous one. Um, it's got a really famous sort of backstory with Odin, Loki, and one of the other gods called Hirnu actually bizarrely kill an otter, which happens to actually have been originally a man. They use the otter to make a little bag, the skin of the otter. But because it was a man, his family, his, his father and brother get very cross. And essentially to atone for it, they have to go and find treasure. They have to fill this bag with gold. Um, they actually get to one of the dwarves who happens to have a ring that he curses, oh, a very wow. special ring. And anybody yeah. who takes this ring and wears it will die, um, which is, of course, for Tolkien fans, uh, quite a familiar story. I mean, you get it in Wagner too, Kat. Yes. Don't you? I'm thinking in, in the ring cycle, for example, Fafner, the, when he's a worm, he's yes. rode a giant serpent, protects the Rhine gold. That's precisely the same dragon that comes from this saga. So it comes from the Volsunga saga, so one of the Vikings. That's exactly what it's based on. Because what happens is that the family of the otter who, who was killed, essentially the father gets cursed by this ring and by this gold from the dwarf. And then the brother, he changes himself into Fafnir, this dragon, and guards the treasure. And eventually Sigurd, the slayer, long story short, kills the dragon and it, you know, it all continues from there. And that, again, as you say, it, it sort of inspires Wagner's ring as well and Tolkien you have these legends and these sagas of these treasures that keep on repeating themselves into different stories and different cultures there's also there's another one in the Viking Age as well and in fact um, the world tree so, so the Viking mythology or the Scandinavian mythology is based around the tree of life called Yggdrasil and right at the bottom of that lives a dragon or a serpent called Nidhogg or Nidhogger, malice striker that means and uh, he essentially represents chaos and evil and, Richard, you like this, at Ragnarok, at the end of the world, the serpent, this dragon, will sort of essentially be free again to attack all the Norse or lead the attack of all the Norse gods. Doesn't the serpent scratch Thor's shoulder 
finds a vulnerability. Yes, I think he does, actually. So, yeah, so you've heard about him. <laughs> but I've been watching it on Netflix, actually. That's the level of my expertise, I'm afraid, Kat. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine, that works. So we have this, and we have, obviously, we have the very famous uh, story of George, St. George, who slays a dragon as well. And... Again, you know, these are really bad. They're really evil characters. When do we think? I mean, when is that meant to have been, St. George and the Dragon? Do we know what era? So this comes back after the Crusades, basically. Mm. So George is actually, I mean, he's not English, even though he's the saint. He's he's actually Turkish. Comes back in this period, the Crusaders, everyone coming back to England. That's where that starts. But the story itself does happen in England, actually in Oxfordshire, allegedly, at hmm. a place called Dragon Hill, which is near the Uffington White Horse. And the story goes that there was this creature, this dragon, that was menacing the local inhabitants. And every day, the only way that they could appease him was to sacrifice a sheep a day until they ran out of sheep. And then they had to start sacrifice children to keep him at bay. So one child was sacrificed every day by lottery until one day the king's daughter was selected. But luckily, George happened to pass by and managed to, to slay the dragon. There's a contrast to this in other cultures. So we have lots of dragons. Um, the Chinese dragons are actually not evil. They're not bad. They are benevolent. And so they are completely different, even though their sort of creatures are similar. They are essentially bringing prosperity. So that's why you have the dragon dances at Chinese New Year, because they bring you money and wealth and prosperity. And I, I do love that. Um, do you want to hear my favourite fact? Yes, love to. Yeah. So I liked, and I hadn't heard of this before at all, but one legend on the origins of the islands of Shetland, Orkneys and the Faroes have all to do with a dragon. And uh, this large sea dragon who, again, would eat children or, or girls every Saturday. And in order to, to stop this dragon, a young boy rode out in his little boat to find the dragon with a burning bucket of peat. And he was swallowed up by the dragon, bucket and boat and boy. But the peat actually set fire to the liver of the dragon and spewed out the boy so he was fine he was safe but with that the dragon essentially divided so the teeth of the dragon became all the separate islands and the body remained as Iceland and so that's the reason why Iceland has volcanoes that's the fires burning away in his liver still so that's the origin of Iceland oh, I love that I had no Makes idea sense to me Yes, I'll, I'll go for that, definitely. <laughs> I like a good story, and that's one of them, isn't it? Yeah, I'll always think of those islands and countries like that now. Yes, exactly, the <laughs> dragon bodies. Yes. Dragons got a great fillip, didn't they, by Game of Thrones, which is another thing mm. I came across on streaming services on television, became completely hooked on it. It's not my kind of thing at all, or I like Wagner. But um, it was very interesting dragon work on that. And some of the most impressive stuff in that was the stuff involving dragons. And one of the main characters was the queen of dragons. Yes. A woman who had the power to subdue and control the dragons, which were the equivalent of the kind of nuclear advantage of their day. I think any sort of fantasy series needs to have either a dragon or a serpent or something, don't they, it seems. Okay, so... We've reached the final point. I'm quite excited this week. Dun, dun, dun. Mm -hmm. Who is it going to be? A disembodied voice is going to undemocratically select this week's winner. 
Well, don't disappear quite yet, Charles, because you'll want to collect your win first. Oh, thank you. Very well done. Oh, thank you. Excellent. I love those stories. They're very good. Well, I do like the characters. I mean, thank you, Richard. But it's just when you find these lunatics who get involved in such. Also, you think, how could they not get caught? You know, that's the interesting thing. Very good. So before we go, we have to share our topics for next week. And next week, Richard you're going to be looking into the Isle of St Kilda. Oh, yes, please. Charles, can you please research Bloomsbury Group? Oh, yes. No, I'd love to do that. And I am going to be looking at Matahari. It's <laughs> a great contrast. <laughs> yes, a great... <laughs> it's a good combination. <laughs> <laughs> so that's it for this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Please subscribe and leave us a review because it really helps people find us when they're searching for a new podcast to listen to. You can also send us an email if you like, especially if you'd like to suggest a new topic for us to research. Just send us an email to rabbitholedetectives at gmail.com. You can find us every Wednesday in the Daily Telegraph in our Rabbit Hole Detectives column discussing our favourite facts from the show. So, in the words from Lewis Carroll's Alice, if everybody minded their own business, the world would go round a deal faster than it does. Goodbye. Goodbye, Kat. Bye all.